Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. In today's show, we're interviewing Anna Kelly. Now, she's not only a real estate investor, but she's created time and money freedom for herself and her family. She's also the founder of REI Mom, helping women to create a legacy through real estate investing. Now here at The Money Advantage, we're a community of wealth creators who are entrepreneurially minded business owners taking control of our lives and financial destiny. Now we all know that it's not enough just to make a great income because first you have to figure out how to keep and protect more of that income, and then finally increase it and make more through the right investing decisions that create cash flow. Now, that's why we've put together a three-step model to help business owners create time and money freedom. Now, today's conversation fits into the cash flow system as part of figuring out how you make those investing decisions that truly align with creating time and money freedom. So here's a little bit more about Anna Kelly. Anna personally owns and manages a multi-million dollar rental property portfolio and has ownership in over 2,000 units as both an active and a passive investor. She's a general partner, sponsor, and asset manager for large multi-million dollar multifamily real estate acquisitions and through Zenith Capital Group, actively seeks out the best opportunities for her partners and investors. Anna currently has $52 million in assets under management. She's also a frequent guest on Real Estate Investing Podcast speaker at REI groups around the country, and is an Amazon number one bestselling author and runs a local meetup group for women in real estate. So let's dive into this conversation. All right, so we are live and I'm going to go ahead and kick us off today. So in today's show, we're interviewing Anna Kelly, real estate investor who's created Time and Money Freedom, founder of REI Mom, helping women create a legacy through real estate investing. So Anna, welcome to the show this morning. Thanks so much, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, Bruce Weiner is with us as well, my co-host, and today is our first time going live on Facebook while we're recording. So welcome to the show, Bruce. Good morning. Um, I'm really excited to uh, talk to Anna today. She has, she is, she is focused on a, um, a particular thing that she wanted into the future and she made it happen. And I'm particularly um, interested to, in her perspective on using leverage to grow this even faster. So this will be um, for everybody listening here. Uh, and have also uh, ever thought about leverage with your real estate. Um, I think she's going to provide some really good insights for that. Excellent. Well, Anna, as we get into the show today, first tell us a little bit about your background and who you were before real estate investing. Sure. So again, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. I started out my career in the financial industry. So about 25 years ago, I was in private banking for Bank of America. And so I really started out, you know, focused on investments and, you know, learning about all the traditional investments that, you know, advisors will tell you to invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, annuities, life insurance, etc. And from there, um, one of the takeaways that I had was a lot of my very wealthy clients um, actually made much better returns in real estate. And so I knew even at a young age that, you know, there's something about real estate. And one day when I have money, I want to learn, you know, how to buy it. Um, So it just put that little bit of a spark in me. So I left um, Bank of America, went to work for AIG, and I was in a product development group 
within the life insurance world where we basically did um, infinite banking type products through private placement variable life insurance policies where our high net worth clients would basically bring us their selected hedge fund and we would custom wrap a life insurance policy around that so that they could invest in what they wanted to and let it grow tax-free forever and then use the loan component, you know, in, in infinite banking. So I had oh, a, a very broad financial background and a, and a, you know, pretty good understanding of private placements and things of that nature. Um, but I really wanted to be home with my children. And so um, even though I had been kind of driven at one point, I had a baby, he just turned 16. And when I was home with him, I really, you know, just desired so much to have that, that freedom to be able to be home. And we couldn't, you know, we had huge school loans. My husband had just gotten out of chiropractic college and oh. I was basically the sole, uh, not the sole breadwinner, but um, after he started his own business kind of became the sole breadwinner while he was building a business and real estate was our way to allow me to create enough passive income so that I could stay home with my kids. And I started investing for that reason. That's very interesting. So it sounds like a combination of factors. So not only do you have this knowledge base, then you also have this, this personal why that you wanted to be able to be home with your kids and be able to build that financial freedom. That's just fascinating. So that was about what, 16 years ago? 16 years ago was when we first attempted to go into real estate. Um, we, we watched a bunch of HGTV while I was at home on maternity leave and bed rest. Nice. And we did our first house flip at the end of 2003 um, in Houston, Texas. And, and that was my kind of first foray. We had a failed flip, lost a bunch of money, lost, you know, learned a whole lot of valuable lessons, but pretty much at that point realized that flipping wasn't the best option for us. Um, and in 2007, we moved to Pennsylvania with two little kids at that point to start my husband's business because we thought, well, you know, the W-2 isn't working, you know, well for him as a chiropractor. Let's just be an entrepreneur and we'll have our own business and that'll create, you know, the financial freedom that we need to allow me to be home with my kids. Well, we did that in 07, um, did really well for a year and then the economy crashed in 08. And uh -huh. not only did it impact, you know, small town, rural Pennsylvania, lots of layoffs, but people's insurance changed. They couldn't afford to pay, you know, co-pays anymore. They had to pay big deductibles. And I worked for AIG, which was one of the biggest companies that was hit hard during the financial crisis. So thought I was losing my job, mm. lost a significant portion of my 401k. I can't remember if it was two thirds or three quarters, but it was a oh, lot. Ouch. It was, it was tough. And we thought, what are we going to do? Like, I'm about to lose my job. I live in a rural area where I could not likely replace my high dollar income, you know, working for a big major corporation very easily. And so the first thing we did was we bought a four unit with a 401k loan, because I thought at least I will have some passive income coming in. Mm -hmm. And we had already bought a four unit to live in that year. Um, because I knew it wasn't wise to buy a house. We're very conservative financially with my financial background and knowing we had all this debt. So we, we started as landlords just kind of out of necessity to cover our own expenses just in case, you know, we lost my job um, and needed to support his. So that started us on the path of eventually realizing we can't rely on a W-2. We can't rely on being entrepreneurs because those businesses can fail we need to really set ourselves up with true income that can become passive, that we can be in control of, and that we can bank on for years and years and years. And real estate rentals was that for us. 
I love that you talk about control and the passive income being more of a fallback on rather than even just focusing on being a W-2 employee and even more than just focusing on being an entrepreneur as well. That's that's fascinating concept there. And then you said that you bought the the property, the rental property, investment property before you bought your own house, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, and I wanted, go ahead. Yeah, we, we did that. And we did that several times because, you know, my why, like you said, was really important to me. I, I wanted to be home with those babies. And it seemed like everything that we did financially to set ourselves up to do that just didn't work out the way we thought it would because of the economy and, you know, debt and things like that. And so I wanted so desperately to be home with my kids that I knew, you know, I don't need a house today. Um, I can live in this small box. You know, we sold a huge house in Texas and moved into this little tiny four unit apartment building. Um, And then when we outgrew it and we had the third child in 2009, we rented a house for four years while I actively bought rental property instead. So it was easier for us to rent a really nice house um, than to put a bunch of down payment money on a house when we could use that to buy investment properties. I love just even hearing you talk about that, thinking outside the box, because I think um, so many times we can get caught in this American dream thing where we say, well, you know, we've got to have the house, I've got to have the cars, I've got to have the job, I've got to have all the trappings of a successful life. And really, you just said, hey, look, it's not really about the outward appearance, it's about actually making the money and actually building passive income through assets. And I love that you really just put all of your heart and soul into building that. Yeah. And, you know, I think, Rachel, even though we know if we really think about money, we realize it's unwise, you know, as, as newly married people to buy a big house and to get a fancy car and to, you know, go into all this debt. It's kind of the pressure of this American dream. And we oh, learned yeah. the hard way by buying a house and getting a car with a six figure school loan that as soon as one person loses a job, you're in trouble. And then the economy happens, you know, collapses at times that you don't suspect. And, you know, we didn't know anything about market cycles and real estate cycles and that we were kind of at the top of the market and about to lose our shirts. And Uh we also went into all this debt to, you know, the dream of being business owners. And all of that taught us so many hard lessons and kept me from being home with my kids so much earlier because we did go down that path. And then we realized, wait a second, we know this isn't the wise thing to do. Let's reset and rebuild it the right way. I love that. Now, was your husband on board with those decisions? Was he helping make decisions along with you? How did that look? Yes, it, initially, yes. You know, but it's interesting um, how two people get together that are completely different and complete opposite. Yes, and I should have prefaced my question because I think a lot of times there can be differences of opinion, even within a married couple. You could say, well, this is my priorities, but here's my priorities over here and not necessarily are they always aligned. And I was just curious how you navigated that. Sure. So we both wanted me to be home with my children. That was important to both of us. We just felt like that was the best thing, you know, to give those those kids the foundation of their mom at home. Um, and because of all the debt that we started out with, it wasn't possible. And so we both had that shared vision. And as a chiropractor, a lot of people don't know this, but when doctors come out of school, um, they basically work for like 30 grand a year. And mm-hmm. He wasn't working seeing patients. He was working being a gopher and drumming up business and being a marketing person. And he wasn't taught marketing and finance and running a business. He was only taught how to see patients. So as soon as he got out of school, he was doing something that he didn't enjoy. He got laid off twice because he didn't bring in enough new business and twice in like two years. And we finally said, you know, this isn't going to work. You should work for yourself. And that's the way that I can be home. So moving here 
Um, I moved from Houston, Texas, where all of my family is, to rural Pennsylvania. I really did it, even though I was afraid to kind of start over, really to support his business so that I could be home with my kids. So we were on the same page about the move. We were on the same page that we needed to be careful with our money, given what we had been through. I didn't tell you, that, too, that during that flip was the second layoff. So we had two mortgages, a car payment, a school loan, and one job. And so we both realized, you know, we need, to, we need to reset. And the smart thing to do was buy a building for his practice and set a lease, buy a four unit for us to live in. And then when we panicked in, oh, you know, late 08, early 09, when all this stuff happened, we knew rental real estate is something that can help us. So we were on the same page for the first three. During that time, it was really difficult because we were trying to keep his business afloat. My job was very demanding. And even though I worked from home, I couldn't have the kids home with me. Um, they were at my mother-in-law's and we had you know, kids stuff in the evenings. And then we started having problems happen with these 12 units. So we had to learn together to be landlords. And I couldn't you know, swing a hammer. I could paint, but it basically fell on him to do the work because at the time we had no money and lots of debt, hundreds of thousands in debt. Mm-hmm. So we, we couldn't really afford to hire other people to do it. So he didn't like, of course, that he had to learn to be Mr. Fix-It and sure. replace those and you know, do plumbing and electrical while he's trying to run a business. Um, so there was a little bit of tension, like, why did we do this? I'm like, honey, trust me, this is the wise financial thing to do. So you know, it took a while for us to get on the same page. Um, and every time I wanted to buy more, he was like, oh, gosh, it's one more thing I have to do. So it would it's definitely a matter of us having to trust each other and work with each other, you know, for the bigger vision, knowing that a few years of really tough blood, sweat and tears active income was eventually going to lead it to be very passive. Um, so we, we just worked through it together. So, so Anna or Anna, uh, talk through your thought process um, in the financial services, because there's a lot of really good things that you were saying there. But they also were timing uh, directed. So, example, when you first when you first got into this idea that you wanted to purchase, it was pre two thousand eight, and um, you probably were able to do some of the things you were able to do because the lending requirements were a lot lot looser. So that was advantageous. But being advantageous though, then got you to to actually purchase more things that you probably should have. And that put more stress in, into it, but it also made it easier for you to get into it. Then you used your, uh, I'm going to ramble here on a bunch of things that you said. Then you used your 401k, which is self-directed, which was out of necessity at that time. And yet a lot of people would, and I want to I want to get your take on this. A lot of people, including Rachel and I would say that should be the last place you should get just simply because the tax benefits Aren't, aren't there for the self-directed. So if you can do it any other way, that would be better. Um, and, and then you grew your, um, your empire, let's call it, through uh, trial and error. And now you're out there teaching people so that they don't, they don't have to go through the same trial and error, mm-hmm. but, they don't have this, but they don't have the same kind of lending, uh, the loose lending that you had. So uh, all those things, what could you comment on all that? Sure. So, you know, I think lending actually right now is still fairly loose given the top of the market cycle where I think we are. It's, it's If you have decent credit and a good job, you know, lending is is available. And what I'm starting to see, Bruce, is a lot of these more creative 
um, lending offers coming out, not necessarily from, from the big players, but people, you know, when real estate gets hot um, and, and lending is competitive, you start to see lenders do some crazy things again, like 100% um, financing, 100% HELOCs, you know, those kind of things. And so I, I think we're kind of heading back toward that loose lending. I think when we hit a recession again, you know, maybe in the next year, 18 months or so, things are going to tighten up again. But to your point, um, when we moved to Pennsylvania, when we bought our very first building, it was my husband's office. So we were looking at leasing space and leases were extremely expensive. And we saw a building for sale that had tenants with it. So it had two units on top of the practice and some tenants behind us. And I thought, you know, it'd be much cheaper when I ran the numbers for us to own this because the tenants are helping to pay that mortgage than for us to lease space. And when you talk about loose lending, so we were moving to PA, the bank, the regional bank knew that I might be losing my job and we were starting a business. They gave me a 90% LTV loan on that commercial space and let me open a 10% credit card to put the whole other 10% on. So I had 100% financing on that building. Now we overpaid because we were at the top of the market and we didn't realize that it was 07. Um, and then the four unit a year later, I was able to get in with like 3%. We did FHA um, as an owner occupied. So um, those, you know, we got into before the crash, right before the crash. But the lending on that building, we really had no place to own, you know, 400 plus thousand dollar building. Also starting up a business with another $300,000 in business startup debt. So we started in 07. I kid you not, over $700,000 of new debt with a new entrepreneur and someone who worked for a company that may not let her work from home. It wasn't wise on our part or on the bank's part. But again, when you're in these these cycles and these upward markets, everyone thinks this is going to last forever. The economy is going great. Nothing's going to happen. And you don't realize that you're at the you know, precipice of, of disaster financially. And so I've learned to be very, very cautious with leverage. I utilize leverage only for real estate investing when I can buy assets with leverage that pay my liabilities and then some. But I am very much against any other type of consumer debt, um, you know, over leveraging yourself just because the loans are available because we learned the lesson the hard way that, that we got in not only not knowing about economic cycles, but way over our heads in debt. I think it's interesting that you mention debt, leverage, arbitrage. I mean, the whole idea of being able to use a liability to then create cash flow and income if you're in a position where you're not going backwards or going negative or you're using um, that liability or a credit card to buy some I, I, Kiyosaki would call it a doodad, right? In the cash flow game, it would be this thing that is just to boost your lifestyle today. I mean, that is definitely not a wise move. But when you're using leverage to create cash flow, that is a good move. And I really love that you also said you made some mistakes. You went through this time that you're over seven hundred thousand dollars in debt at this point. How did you go then from there? And honestly, there's so many threads that we can pull from this because I think there's still pieces that Bruce pulled into the conversation that we want to come back to. But how did you go from that position to where you are today? Kind of track us through that journey and what that looked like. Sure. And on on that way, I just want to make one quick note that I forgot to mention, Bruce, about the 401k. So my 401k was an employer plan. But I had the ability to borrow from that plan, so I didn't withdraw. So you bought, okay. I didn't withdraw okay. the fifty k. I could borrow up to fifty thousand dollars, and it was like three and a quarter or three and a half percent interest. 
So I borrowed it um, to buy a four-unit building and was paying myself back the interest. So I didn't have the big tax hit. And quite frankly, mm. it was our only option. Like I knew I'm going to lose my job. I've already lost two-thirds of this thing ballpark. And I need something that can bring me $1,000 a month so we can eat and pay for gas. So it was, a, it was my last resort. I didn't have any other cash and I had a lot of leverage. And so I think when you're in that kind of situation, those things are designed for an emergency unless it's an infinite banking plan and you're using it for leverage on purpose. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. I used it to my advantage in, in an emergency. Um, so just wanted to say that when you talk about getting from there. And you were highly resourceful with that as well. I mean, let's just point out here, you didn't go take a loan from your 401k so that you could eat. You chose to create this asset to produce income so that you could be in a position where you could create cash flow from that asset. And I think there's a huge difference between borrowing from the 401k to put food on the table directly or creating that asset that's going to put food on the table. For sure. And I, you know, I'm so thankful. I read some books as I started to buy the first property that what my husband was going to practice in about making money and, and, and rentals and, and buying rental property for extra income. And they really showed me like what was possible with, um, you know, buying with leverage and um, creating that cash flow and then raising the values and cashing out and doing it again and again. So I had just read a couple of books that helped me to think through that properly. Um, and right afterwards, I thought, oh, if I could just buy another one. You know, AIG basically told us, brace yourselves. Mo- many of you may lose your jobs. You know, you'll have mm-hmm. some kind of package. And I had been there a while. So I was just kind of hoping that when I got laid off, I'd get a package that could sustain us for a while. And I could try to accumulate some more rental properties to, make, to bridge the gap between maybe what my new salary would be with some other employer here versus what I was making. So I tried to keep buying property. But right after that, the lending really tightened, um, as many of you know. And so I tried to get loans. But number one, I worked for AIG. And the whole world saw AIG on the news every day. So they saw there were layoffs. They, they saw we were in a you know, very creative unit. And none of the banks would, would approve me for a loan. So I'm like, you know, I'm, mm. I know what this plan is. It's a wise move. I'm not buying a car, but they just saw, you know, $700,000 of debt for your spouse, a job with AIG that's probably going under. There's no way they would lend me money. And so it took me five years to really find another way when the banks were still saying no. And basically, eventually, I got so tired over five years of working full time, still trying to keep my husband's business afloat. We were dealing with these 12 tenants and we did one by one, you know, knowing that even though we couldn't buy more now, we could keep raising the value of the units we had and keep raising the rents. And so we just focused on those 12 units for those five years. I had another baby. So I was, you know, at this point, four kids five years ago. And I said, I've got to find another way. I've got to find ways to buy property with creative financing and owner financing And I knew that owners that finance properties could defer their capital gains taxes. So if I could just find the right owners and research and explain to them the benefits of owner financing, maybe I could keep buying. And I went back to a a real estate meeting. I hadn't been to any local RIA groups in years. And I went to one and met a guy who wanted to sell a a property, a multi-unit in my area. And I asked him if he would be be interested in talking about selling on terms. And he said, yes. So I saw the property, another four-unit building, 
had lunch with them, made an offer, we worked it out, and I bought a four unit on owner financing. And when I did that, it gave me the confidence to say, you know what, I can keep doing this and I can keep growing. And that was about two weeks after AIG, after all these years, said finally, okay, it's our turn. Our division's going to be sold. So all of you need to pretty much be prepared within a year to lose your jobs. And that, that mm-hmm. kind of pushed me to say, I really have to do this now. And, you know, my kids were growing and all those years of wanting to be home were kind of not happening. Um, so I went down that path and I actually bought another four unit the next month. Um, word of mouth for another retiring landlord that wanted to save on capital gains called me and we were able to make a deal. Um, and then I partnered with somebody to buy another four unit. And once I had another 12 units within about three or four months, I went back to my banks who had said no. And I, my regional lender who had given me the very first loan in 07, the 90% loan, I said, look, I've paid faithfully. We are in a much better position now. I have all these units. Will you please give me an equity loan or an equity line of credit? And I will only use it to buy more rental property. And they finally said, yes, you've done a good job. And once I had that five years ago, I knew that I could scale this thing very quickly with the wise use of leverage, only buying um, income producing properties to get to where I needed to to be. That's fascinating. And I really appreciate how you led us through that journey because I think it's easy for somebody to look at someone like you and say, okay, well, she's in a position where she is financially free now. She's reached that time and money freedom. And and I want you to talk about that a little bit too. How, um, I mean, right now you're in a position where you have not had to work in that job with AIG anymore. You're in a position where you've accomplished that dream of being able to be home with your kids and it's easy to look at that and just think, oh, it must have been easy for her. <laughs> and you clearly went through a lot of bumps, bumps and dips and, and hardship and challenges and hard decisions. And, and I mean, even just the five years of having to prove yourself so that you could come back to the bank and obtain that financing that you knew that you knew you were capable of using well, but they didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just as you are sharing this journey, it's easy, I think, for people to say, it must have been easy for her. And it's clearly not. And I love that you're sharing the hardships and the real lessons yeah, that you learned. Thank you. And, and that's so important for me, you know, and the reason that I do these, these types of things and post on Facebook, because all people really hear is buy property and you'll get rich. And the reality is it's not that easy. So many things are outside of your control. The, the economy, lending, um, your job, you know, your family dynamic, you know, what, you know, it's, if you're young and you're young twenties and maybe you don't have any kids and one spouse can support you. Sure. You can have a much easier path, but the realities of life make it such that you've got lots of challenges against you and you just have to figure out a way. How can I get creative? If I want something badly enough, how can I get creative and make it happen? Even when nothing else seems to work out. So you know, five years ago when I bought those three, um, four unit buildings and the bank started to say yes, basically, Rachel, I just created a plan and said, um, I have to keep investing locally because at this point I had four kids still helping when my husband's business still working. And they started getting very active in sports and things like that. So I knew I had to buy local. We just had to keep with the same plan what had worked with us. We'd buy four unit apartment buildings um, we bought a couple singles that we bought at foreclosures that we knew we could make them, you know, worth about 50k more. And in a couple months, I could take 40k out as a second mortgage and use that to buy another four-unit building. So we just created a plan to buy four—I'm uh, sorry, 12 units a year over the next four years. 
And I knew that if I did that, I would be able to bring in about 150000 a year passive in my rental income. And that would be enough for me to be home. So I just went methodically on that plan of, you know, 12 units a year, four years. And four years in, I realized create doing a financial statement that, oh my goodness, I'm actually a multimillionaire on paper. I still didn't feel <laughs> like that because I'm still living check to check with my AIG income and putting everything we made in these buildings back into buying more. We didn't take anything out um, of that income. Everything we made, it just went to, to saving up enough down payment for the next one. And so, you know, the last year, basically I knew, okay, now I've got enough to replace my income, but I had some lines of credit and business credit cards that I used very strategically and carefully at 0% to do the repairs on the units and then pay them off as soon as I got a second mortgage and then start it over again. But I needed to pay off about $200,000 in debt before I felt comfortable quitting my job and, and, you know, and, and retiring. And so I bought a big multifamily last December with two partners and learned about you know, partnerships and, and syndication. And that was enough for me with the acquisition fee to pay down half of that debt I actually sold three of my units because I knew I could make $100,000 on them and I needed that cash to be able to safely retire. And then I retired in May. And you know, now that we gave up one income, it has not felt any different because I just started living on the rental income where before we were living on the W-2 and it reinvesting the rental income. But you know, five years later, I was able to retire you know, with a strong six-figure income multimillionaire and just pinching myself like, how did this happen? It seems so slow and so hard, but we got here. And now that I have been able to retire and really give it my full-time focus during the day while my kids are in school, I have significantly increased my portfolio um, where now I'm, I have ownership you know, as a general partner in almost 500 doors and I'm asset managing like $52 million in real estate. It's just been incredible. Hey, two two things. Um, you 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 probably haven't listened to our podcast, but our listeners know that there's a couple of things that we don't we kind of cringe. You use the word retirement, which is which is your, prerog <laughs> your your prerogative to use. But to me, you you didn't retire; you just left the job. Yes, um, yes. And the other thing is this idea of passive income. Uh, that's that's the proper term, but it's not really passive. I mean, you're you're working on this every single day, and you've worked on all that time before those sixteen years before to produce this kind of income, which we call, for whatever reason, passive income. Right. And there's nothing passive about it. Correct. And and I think that's so important for people to understand that it, you know. For most of us, you know, 80% of the population or more is not independently wealthy and financially free. And so most of us that are trying to build passive income from rentals, it's built on literally, I, I say, the blood, sweat, and tears of active income. It takes years of mm -hmm. active income to get it to the point that it's passive. Now, most of, so I own 70 units, my husband and I together, that just us own with no partnership. And for those 70, because we redid them the right way, we you know, totally re redid those units, they are really pretty passive for us at this point because not much goes wrong. We have like a 2% vacancy rate in our area. 
we have a, a very low supply for our demand and we have above average income earners living in our apartments. So there's very little turnover, very little maintenance issues, and it can truly become significantly passive, although not completely passive. Um, buying these bigger ones, you know, again, right now I'm putting in a lot of time during the day to find deals, finance the deals, syndicate the deals, and then, you know, getting big chunks of cash for putting those things together and then having income, you know, from those bigger properties that will last probably somewhere between three and 10 years, depending on the strategy for these bigger properties. Um, but it will become much more passive for me once the deal's put together than it is up front. So, you know, that, that word retirement, again, like I wanted to be home with my kids so badly. And the reality is now they're all old enough to be in school. They're between eight and 16. So now I have a choice during the day. If I never did another deal, Bruce, I really could say I'm just totally retired. I am just doing whatever I want during the eight hours a day my kids are in school. But I have a choice and I feel like a, a privilege and responsibility to do greater things with my time now that I'm not mm -hmm. working a, a W-2 to say what else can I do and still be able to have financial freedom enough that I can control my day. And at 3.05 when my kids walk through the door, I'm not working. Unless there's an emergency, I'm wife and mom and enjoying my evenings. And what I've built on the side has allowed me to have that choice, whether I want to work during the day and keep growing this thing or not. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we try to preach is that um, you don't, you're not really trying to uh, retire. In, the, in, a, in other words, build up a, uh, a mound of money and then try to draw off of it. What you're trying to do is build up cash flow. So that it gives you the time and money freedom to do the things that you want. That's true financial freedom. Exactly. A lot of, a lot of people think financial freedom is I'm going to build this big uh, mound of cash and then supposedly I'm going to take, you know, 4% off of this for the rest of my life and never run out of it. And of course, <laughs> you, you, you shared with our, our listeners, and we've said this before, but it's always great, unsolicited, you, you shared that you lost somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of your money. And so it's, um, we always talk about real estate, you know, could go down and it does go down, except people have to live somewhere. So the, it's, it's the cash flow that's still important off those real, real estate properties. Yeah. And I think another distinction that people are really surprised to hear me say, you know, as, as someone who was trained as a financial advisor and told people stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, get that for, it used to be eight to 10%. Now it's like four to six if you're lucky. But the reality is real estate has a real value. There's, there's true um, intrinsic value in, in property and in real estate, and especially in multifamily real estate, um, you know, even more so than necessarily single family. Um, but the market, the stock market is primarily not valued on its intrinsic value of the book value of that company. It's valued based on consumer sentiment. And so if you mm -hmm. look at the stock market right now, the, the price Per, per share of stock is well over what the price per share of stock should be if you look at their PE ratio. And so we are really at risk by putting all of our money in the stock market right now thinking, oh, things are never going to crash. It's just going to keep on going. And the reality is when, when most of the stock market is overvalued, then as soon as consumer sentiment starts to, to freak out a little bit, like we're seeing right now with all these yield curve inversions, people start to panic and sell, and then they're going to panic and sell and they're going to lose their shirts. And so I have been completely out of the stock market personally 
for 18 months because I just feel like it is not a good place to represent real value that I can bank on that four, six, eight percent, whatever they want to say it is, because I see that a correction has to happen, not only because of where we are in the cycle, but because of the fact that it truly is overvalued right now. So I would much rather bank on some level of control in where I invest my real estate in a way that its values are not likely to be hit significantly, then I would give up complete control just because my financial advisor says, oh, it goes in cycles, just don't touch it, you'll be okay. If you have to touch it right now when it's getting ready to go down because you're about to retire, you could lose your shirt and not be able to retire. Um, and I saw it happen to my grandparents you know, before the last crash, retiring right before that and losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the stock market. Yeah, it's, it's, all about, it's all about time horizons. People always, um, they don't understand this. Um, I don't know if you know this, Anna, but I am a financial advisor. Uh, and people talk about this all the time. They're just like, well, over the last 50 years, but it's, that 50 years may not be your time horizon. It may be, it may be over the next 20 years, and that's going to be completely different. And I do believe we're at the, the top of the cycle. Um, you know, maybe not the very top. Who, who knows? Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is you see things that uh, are indicating that. And one is a little bit uh, easier lending. Um, I went to a talk uh, last Tuesday by Manny um, uh, Menton Bados, who's the, the uh, editor of The Economist magazine. And she says one of the things that you can actually notice at the top of cycles is that every, every financial institution starts saying things are easy. Like, we can get you this easy loan. We can, this, this stock's going to easy. You can't lose on this. You can't, so on and so forth. And then I heard somebody, I won't mention the major wirehouse because I don't want to put anybody down, but I made, I, I, the president of a major wirehouse just the other day said, I know that the yield curve has in, inverted or the last 10 times that the yield curve inverted, we had a recession in the next 18 months, but I really think it's different this time. And, <laughs> they said that last time it, too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now talk a little bit about, uh, cause I, I listened to you on another podcast about your thinking that has changed from like uh, D plus C minus, um, uh, properties to more of that uh, uh, B property and, and how you came about it with the school districts and so on and so forth. Sure. So one of the, the important things that I just mentioned is that although real estate values can also go up and down, there are certain types of properties that are just more resilient during any point in the economy. And um, I started out buying in an area that was like a class B area. So when we look at, at properties, especially commercial properties, multifamily, we typically say there's A, B, C, and D properties and A, B, C, and D areas. So the A areas are like brand spanking new, really big builds. Um, D is a war zone, drugs, gang activity, robberies. You don't want to live in a D zone. You want to live <laughs> in an A zone. But most people right. can afford to live in a B or C class area. So your B-class area might be your above median income people, a lot of millennials who can't quite afford the, you know, the brand new building with all the bells and whistles, but they're making good income and they want a nice property and they want to be near jobs and near um, shopping and restaurants and things like that. So that's going to be like a class B area. 
And then you've got your C, which um, people, you know, have a broad range of C, but it's basically where the average American person, you know, lives like median income, maybe just below median income, but decent school districts, um, B, or you're going to be really good school districts and A, maybe even better. And so I did a little experiment. I, I really invested primarily in class B to C plus area really close to where I live within about 15 minutes. And by investing in those areas, my tenant pool are really strong tenants. Um, they're not going to destroy the property. The property values stay pretty stable. They're well-maintained. People want to keep um, the sense of a well-maintained property. I have doctors. I have interns. I have nurses. I have um, leaders at you know major like Hershey, uh, the Hershey factory and the Reese's plant and um, really high dollar earners that live in most of my buildings and they stay a long time. So the values of those properties between 07 and now have not gone down. My rents haven't gone down. So they weathered the recession really well. And even though we had some layoffs in our area, when you're dealing with class B to even C plus areas, we had the best school districts, the two best school districts in our entire region. And so if people lose jobs, they may downsize into an older apartment to, to, to have a lower rent, but they're going to do whatever they can to stay in that nice area to keep their kids in those schools. And so those types of properties just are kind of a sweet spot for me where the rental income is really good, the property values maintain themselves, and the tenant pool is really strong and wants to stay. And I also have really good supply-demand um, you know, balance. So there's not a lot of supply in my area. It's hard to get new building permits. And so I, you know, just offer a slightly nicer product than what the, the average does in my area. And I keep tenants a really long time. I had a small experiment because my goal, remember, was cash flow. All I cared about primarily was I need to replace my income and be home with my babies. I knew I needed to think about the long-term value of assets and buy things that were fairly easy to manage given that we were self-managing but I was willing to take a gamble on going into a C minus area. And I invested about 20 minutes from here in, a, in an area that, you know, wasn't quite D war zone, but the tenants um, did not have like, like sustainable jobs. Most of them might work at, you know, a cleaning company or a, at a mall or at a grocery store and um, not good school districts, you know, rated maybe two or three out of 10. But I could buy a three unit where it would cost me one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy five thousand to buy a three unit in my town. I bought a three unit for seventy five thousand dollars, and the rents weren't significantly lower than the rents that I was already getting here. So I thought, how bad can this be? I will just hire a property management company so I don't have to drive there because I wouldn't want my kids sitting there in the car by themselves while I'm in the property. It's just that kind of area that I felt just not quite safe enough. Um, if you don't feel safe to, you know, lock your doors and keep your kids in the car, that's a C minus D area. And um, my husband was like, I am not managing property there. So if you're going to buy it, that's fine, but you're going to hire a property manager. And we had more trouble and more issues meeting our business plan with those three units. And then I did the same thing with a single family. I bought it for 30000 It was worth ninety, and I got like $900 a month in rent. So I thought, man, cash flow is king. You know, a year in, they couldn't keep tenants. Tenants didn't want to stay because of problems with their neighbors or losing their jobs or drug activity, wanting their kids out of the schools. They destroyed the properties. 
um, skip town, couldn't pay rent, and even the property management company just couldn't keep them filled. So while on paper, the business plan looked really great, when you're in areas where people don't want to live, can't afford to live, and don't have good school districts, you're basically creating a business plan relying on people who can't pay, which is just the right. nice thing to do. So I learned very quickly, um, this is not good, and I would rather cash out now, also thinking we were you know, near the top of a cycle and needing that money, and just cut my losses and not invest in those areas anymore. And so thankfully, in a year and a half, not quite a year and a half, I made $100,000 on that three unit and that single family house because I bought them so well. Um, and I was able to sell to other investors who are desperate to get in the game and, and will overpay in an area that they shouldn't. Um, you know, so I, it was an experiment. I learned very quickly that I didn't like that experiment, at least not for my model. And now I am investing primarily only in class B areas or class A areas with buildings that were built somewhere between, you know, 1980 and, you know, 10 years old. So it's interesting as you're talking about this because there's more to the picture than just cash flow, right? Yes. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, on paper, cash flow looked like it was going to be the ideal case here, but you have to understand the big picture and understand not only the class of the neighborhood, but the type of people. And you, you said you were not going into it for the purpose of appreciation, but because of how you bought the property, that ended up being a play that was in your favor that you then had cash to be able to use in another situation. And it's just interesting how you're pulling all of these threads together because it's not a one size fits all. It's not like, here's the one formula, apply this one mathematical formula to all the rental properties and all of a sudden you're in a position where now we know exactly how you're going to achieve financial freedom in 25 years. You really need to be in a position where you're understanding and building your knowledge. And it sounds like you've always been this learner that you were willing to say, okay, how can we learn how to do property management? How can we learn how to invest? How can we learn how to do this new thing? And I think that um, just growth mindset that you had even helped you to be able to understand the big picture as you're investing. Sure. And I think too, starting out, you know, with, with a financial advisor mindset, I really was always thinking about, you know, when you have money and, and as you grow money, you need to focus on, you know, income, um, growth and preservation. And so I knew with every investment, all three of those things were important, but at different phases of your life, one of those things may be much more important to you than the other. So as we were growing income, because I wanted to be home with my kids, that was my primary focus. Yet I still knew that I needed to buy things and the types of real estate that I could, you know, bank on not losing my shirt, um, you know, preser preserving the value and, and having properties that, that were going to go up in value. So this little bit of a, a stray really wasn't like, a, I'm going to go all that way. But I, I had enough that I was willing to say, let me take a chance on a, a few that are just income. And then I realized the headache of the income wasn't worth the fact that the properties were going to go down in value, probably weren't going to appreciate much, you know, much longer. Um, but I think that that's, that's really important is that as you go in different phases, the type of investor you are changes. And even for us now, now that we have, you know, a lot more than what we need coming in, I'm not as concerned with cash flow. I still want the cash flow, but not at the sacrifice of my time. So in the beginning, I was all for cash flow, but I had to put in all my time because I didn't have any money. Now I've got time and a lot more money. So I'd rather invest in things that are going to give me some cash flow, but that I know can weather this next recession pretty well to preserve my capital and eventually go back up in value. Hey, Anna, uh, we have a tagline that says, uh, model the successful few and build a business and life that you love. 
And so from your financial advising background, you actually modeled the successful few. Yes. And then, and then you've actually mentioned um, using infinite banking and that these really successful people used it. We, we actually are espouse infinite banking and we, we practice it and we, we teach it to people. And the thing that comes out all the time, people say, well, if this is so great, why haven't I heard about it? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is it's been around for quite a while, even when they didn't call it infinite banking, mm -hmm. but people were using their life insurance policies. So what have you learned? Um, the single most important thing do you think you have learned from modeling the successful few? I think just learning how to master money so that money doesn't master you. You know, we are not taught in our, um, in our education system really strong financial fundamentals. We are taught Amen learn to that. your stuff, get a good degree, um, and go make money, work for 30 or 40 years, and one day you'll retire. You know, you know buy a house, you deserve it. Buy a car, you deserve it. Live the American dream. We're not taught, um, you know, the use of debt and what it can do to us and how much interest we're paying. We're not taught the wise use of debt. So, you know, in everything, even going through my training as a financial advisor, I didn't learn about real estate. I only learned about basics of here's how you slowly grow the retirement plan of the American dream. And if you have money, here's the things that you can invest in to make a different return. No one ever taught me how do you master money? How do you use debt wisely? What kind of debt should you not use? What do market cycles look like? You know, none of these things are really taught. And so I knew that I, what I was trying to do the, the way that I had been taught wasn't working. And I needed to learn more about money and my options. And I just started studying. And so, like you said, you know, you know, Buffett says when, you know, when people are, are, frantic, that's when you buy. When people are, you know, all happy, that's when you sell. And so just learning basic fundamentals of the market and how to use money to grow wealth um, is, is something super important that I don't see in our American education system. I completely agree. And I think just the emphasis on cash flow and having tangible, actual, physical assets that you have the ability to get cash flow from or sell is completely different, as you were talking about, from the paper market and just having your money in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. And so you're, you've said the word control probably, I don't even know, 10 <laughs> times during this show here. And that's really what we're talking about as well. It's so important to be in a position where you have cash flow from the money that you're making, from your active income. You have money that you're not spending at mm -hmm. all. You're your cost of living is less than what you make. So you have that cash flow gap, then you're putting that cash flow to work to generate and create cash flowing assets. And so it's just interesting to hear um, whenever, I guess the reason that we even do this podcast to begin with is that there's so many people who want to be financially free, but just there's so much misinformation about the, about creating retirement and financial freedom in the world that most people don't actually know how to go through doing that. And so it's just really awesome to be able to learn from people like yourself who have walked through that journey and followed that path. And so I wanted to then ask you, because as we talk about in our cash flow system, it's more than just becoming financially free. It's about having time and money freedom and then creating a legacy and having your greatest contribution, you're giving back. Yeah. And so you're not only investing yourself. I want to ask you kind of a, a multifaceted question. I want to know what you're looking for today because you're not just investing for yourself. You're taking other investors along on this journey with you. 
And then I know you're giving back as well through REI Mom and then um, another um, mastermind as well that I'd like you to talk about and just kind of why you've decided to be a giver of this knowledge and insight and not just say, hey, I've done it myself and now I'm going to, um, you know, just kick back and relax. Sure. So, you know, the REI mom and, um, you know, some of my coaching and a, a, a local women's real estate group that I have really are around that exact desire just to help people to understand um, that this is not a pipe dream, that real estate really is one of the greatest wealth builders and wealth preservers of any investment available to us. And it's not just for the ultra wealthy. Um, if someone like myself, who I grew up in Section 8 housing and apartments, um, had no one to tell me about money, could become financially free and independently wealthy through real estate the hard way. I know anybody can do it if you will just educate yourself and actually take action daily and take any bumps in the road that come, because many will, and just keep with your plan. Just keep going, get creative, figure out another way to do it. But there is nothing like real estate to um, get people out of the cycle of you know, being a slave to the American dream, if you can even achieve the American dream, and really realizing you know, what, what true freedom is about, you know, financial freedom, time freedom, um, really just through educating yourself and taking action and modeling others. And so that's, that's been my desire to give back. And now that I have the, the time freedom of not working you know, all day during the day for another company, I have some time that I can you know, spend pouring into other people and just teaching them you know, to do what I've done. That's awesome. And I just, I want to thank you for that contribution. Thank you for being willing to be on our show. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with people in general. And so what is it that you're looking for in terms of new investments right now? And then um, we'll, we'll find out how people can follow you if they want to find out more. Great. So primarily I'm focused on multifamily housing right now, um, primarily because it's where I have the most knowledge and, and understanding of, of the market and its impact. But I really view myself as, a, as an income stream investor. So anything that I can find, um, like self-storage, for example, in the right areas and the right market saturation, there's all kinds of caveats, but things like self-storage where um, you can have cash flow, you can have um, some tax benefits, you can have the um, equity, appreci equity appreciation, you know, leverage, um, all of those things. I'm interested in those, those niches as well, um, but it's just kind of taking one thing at a time. So as I focus on multifamily, um, I take the chunks of cash that I make through acquisition fees and through my monthly income, and I'm looking to deploy it into other um, investments and other sectors that have very similar fundamentals within real estate. Um, primarily, I'm focused on multifamily investing for my own portfolio with JV partners here locally where we have, you know, better reach and better um, saturation to get better off-market deals and create some economies of scale. And we're looking in class B, class A areas for slightly older buildings. And then in my syndication model, we're doing the same thing, but just not here in PA. So we're looking at certain markets where we feel the supply demand fundamentals are really good, um, that the long-term economics of the area are really strong, even if we head into a recession. And we're primarily looking for assets where we are not overpaying like the rest of the world is. We're not looking mm -hmm. for A, B plus assets over 150 unit because we're competing with hedge funds and institutions who are 
you know, trying to park their, their money in a safe place during a recession. So they're overpaying, you know, by that's exactly right. for these big properties. So we're looking to find properties just under their radar where there's not a ton of competition, where we can go in and buy a little older, rougher building that we know has potential to raise rents even in a recession. And so I'm looking, you know, more for asset preservation and appreciation than necessarily cash flow over this next couple of years in those really nice areas um, that I think are going to kind of weather the storm better than some other areas. That's excellent. And I just really appreciate you sharing not only what you're looking for, but who you are as a person. I think it's, it's just really interesting to see the journey that you've gone on and all of the lessons that you've learned as a result of that and, and how you're able to create the wealth that you are today. So if somebody is wanting to reach out to you, whether uh, for coaching or uh, to understand real estate investing better or to partner with you on any deals, how do they find and follow you and, and learn more about you? Sure. So on Facebook, um, you can find me there, Anna, REI Mom Kelly. I have a Facebook group called Creating Real Estate Wealth That Lasts with REI Mom. And my email is, uh, w, is info at reimom.com. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that we have those links in the show notes to this podcast as well as that goes live. And so thank you so much for sharing just your abundance of wealth and wisdom with us today on the Money Advantage podcast. We sincerely appreciate you and your time today. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. In closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business that you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.